Hello and welcome to the Remaining Sane, Finding Peace in Our Chaos podcast, a podcast about both theology and police work. I'm your host, Will, and in today's episode, I interview a pastor-turned-missionary, Mr. Grady Davidson. Grady, how are you today? I'm doing great, Will. Good to be with you. Good. Um, before we get started, would you mind giving us just a, a background, you know, who is Gray Davidson, where is he from, all that? Sure, Will. I grew up in southwest Virginia uh, in the heart of Appalachia um, and uh, went to King College in Bristol, Tennessee. From there, went pretty much straight into seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, which then turned into about eight to ten years of doing several different things before uh, becoming ordained as a minister in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And since that time, I've spent most of my adult life, uh, 21 years, as the pastor of a small EBC congregation in, here in Chattanooga. So if we say EBC, that's going to mean? Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Okay. So for those of us that are maybe not Presbyterians, um, what in the in the realm of presbyterians so there's there's different i guess denominations of presbyterians is that correct certainly okay so the epc is one of those um and i know the i believe like the most popular or the the most well known in in the us would be like the pcusa right like that's the most widespread that's correct the epc is one of a number of smaller uh, Presbyterian and Reformed denominations in North America. Uh, I suppose our distinctive is that we have what we call seven essentials of the faith, that we start from a standpoint of here are bedrock essentials, not just of being Presbyterian, but of being a Christian at all. And we find agreement in those points, and then beyond that, we do require of our officers subscription to the Westminster Standards. If you have exceptions to it, then each court of the church can review that exception. But we do try to be a little bit bigger tent in some ways while agreeing on the uh, the essentials of uh, historic Orthodox Christianity. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, well, moving away from just a you know religious history, sure. right? Um, you currently um you're kind of in a, a transition from what i understand right now right you're moving away from being you know a, a pastor of a of a parish a church whatever you want to you know whatever you want to say a congregation into being a missionary is that correct that's yeah. correct so i was a pastor in one place as i mentioned for 21 years and now i'm embracing a new role doing non-formal pastoral training in the majority world and still kind of on the front end of learning what that's all about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one of the things that um, I wanted to bring up is that, in you know, we've talked about this before, in some ways law enforcement and pastoral work do have some similarities. I believe that it's a calling. I believe both law enforcement and police work are callings. That they're in their vocations, right? You know, you, Absolutely. Yeah. You... You, you don't do them for the money. You don't do them um, for the for the fame or even today's culture. You don't do them for like societal gain. You do them because you feel called to do that. Absolutely. One of the the hurdles I think that that cops have is that you know we 
or and I assume this is true with with pastoral work as well is that you know a couple of years in we don't become so enamored with the work itself right like we we start you know the work becomes tedious or the the vocation becomes work and then you know we forget why we started it right that's why they call it work it, it yeah. is work and it can be tedious and uh, it can uh, there there are days and weeks when you wake up and ask okay what am i doing and why am i doing it and uh, am I in the right place? Um, why should I continue doing in this? And certainly in, in our, our respective fields, and perhaps in every field, you reach those points where you're looking across the fence and wondering, is the grass greener over there? Um, should I try to jump the fence, or do I stay uh, in my current pasture, so to speak? <clears throat> uh, yeah, there's even another parallel there. I think that... Um a lot of officers, because of the way that the uh, law enforcement works in the U.S., how we have um, like municipalities, or for the most part, especially you know where we are in the southeast, um, there's not like a lot of big state agencies that respond directly to calls. So, for what I'm getting to is like, for example. Uh, like Pennsylvania State Police, or I think even the the New York State Troopers, they respond directly to calls. They they function as like this big police department right. over the, all the rural areas of, of right. the of the state. Um, and you know, down here for the most part, individual sheriffs do that, um, or you have small municipalities, you know, that have four man, five man departments, right? Right. Um, and so a lot of times there's a there's this tug and pull between different agencies and you kind of wonder is the grass greener on this end right these guys pay just a, a hair more than these guys should i go over here um but you know one of the things that i've heard you talk about before is your um spiritual gift of plotting um and that i think lines up really well with police work because a lot of times I know that I struggle with this is that we can find ourselves really susceptible to wanting to change and continue to go in different directions and, and not continue just to work at the, at the same thing. Would you mind defining what plotting is and what that, how that turns into, um, a, I, I guess like a spiritual gift for. Sure. Know? So the, I coined that phrase, the spiritual gift of plotting probably, uh, probably 15 years ago, to describe my ministry style, uh, and it was, I probably first said it uh, in answer to questions concerning why are you, quote-unquote, still at a small church. Um, I've definitely felt some pressure and expectation after I've been at a small local parish for about five years. I felt some pressure from the outside from well-meaning mentors and others uh, who were encouraging me to begin looking around and uh, there was almost a vocational expectation that a, a, a younger pastor at that time in my early to mid-30s, that you put in your time in a small place, and then you go to a little bit bigger place, and there there was a sense of climbing the ladder, that, that there was an expectation of that. So I, I began using that phrase, that I have the spiritual gift of plotting, just to say that I really do think I'm at my best when I do the same work routinely, and faithfully and 
uh, without without feeling the need to be looking around or trying to go elsewhere. And and uh, to uh, uh, there's a quotation from my father that uh, referenced sometimes. Uh, he had a, a saying that, well, I guess I'll just keep on hoeing my row of taters. And so you look down the long row of potatoes in the garden, and there's corn behind you, and there's beans on the other row. But if you're assigned to hoe your row of taters, then you best just keep doing what you're assigned to do until you really know that, that it's time that, that you finished your row and it's time to look at a different one. Um, so spiritual plotting, um, I, I think of the book of Ecclesiastes where the teacher, uh, the Kohelet, uh, Solomon, um, he, he tries all kinds of different ventures looking for fulfillment and experiments with human relationships and with the party scene and with uh, industry and commerce. And everything seems to turn to ashes. And then he observes, if you'll notice, if you carefully read Ecclesiastes, he has a special admiration for the laborer who, who makes a daily wage and isn't going to get very far ahead in life. And yet that laborer who goes to work every day takes pride and joy in, in his work and does the work for the glory of God, goes home with his daily bread, um, uh, his, his coin of daily bread in his pocket and enjoys dinner and time with his family and goes to bed and sleeps well. And I think that's the idea, uh, that's a picture of spiritual plotting, that it really is about contentment of heart uh, to be where you are and to be a faithful presence where you are. And, and something you and I have discussed before, Will, is, is incarnational ministry and embodiment. Uh, you use the word embodiment, which I think is a very, it's a, it's a spiritual idea. We often speak of incarnation, that we are just embodied um, as, uh, as image bearers of God where we are. And there is glory brought to God and joy to be experienced just in in uh, faithfully doing what you're called to do and uh and doing it maybe for a long time <clears throat> yeah i and you're speaking my language here this <laughs> this is um yeah you know this is something that um we've talked about before with the ecclesiastes i mean we, we especially reference this with dr barnard mm -hmm. um is the the human tendency to to become nihilistic and to strive for yes. the next thing and um you know this whole podcast is is based around the the fact that you know a lot of police officers tend to find their eternal purpose or their eternal um the reason for which they exist in their police work and police work is good and you know the things that uh, Koala chases in Ecclesiastes, some some of them are good things. You know, um, he, he does mention justice. He mentions virtue um, in in Ecclesiastes, but the but once again, you know, we're we're never going to to like reach the end of police work. We're never going. Now, are we, gonna, are we <laughs> going to reach the end of of uh, right of being a pastor? Right? right. You know, I don't I don't believe we're ever going to have everyone churched. Right. right? And on top of that, everyone growing in in their you know in the fullness of the body of Christ right mm -hmm. uh, and so I imagine that sometimes it can you know especially doing your job as long as you did it it, it almost it could feel nihilistic or empty 
sometimes. And you really have to center yourself on, on what your calling is and what Christ has you know, told you to do and being content with that, right? Right, and, and uh, you're using um, language from the Christian spiritual tradition, certainly when you talk of, of centering yourself, um, not in a, a mystical way, but of knowing how to pray, uh, how to get your, get your head back on straight. Um, in, in, the, in the world of pastoral ministry, especially if you're a solo pastor who preaches every week, um, Mondays are proverbi- proverbially difficult days, and um, I would joke with my wife uh, on Mondays, uh, keep me away from tall trees and short ropes. It's Monday, um, but you get through Monday and start looking ahead to what's next, and it's a new week and new opportunities. And uh, so in terms of, of nihilism and despair, um, we, I don't think you and I have really talked about this before, Will, but I imagine that there are some similarities between uh, law enforcement officers and clergy in terms of some of the traps that we can fall into uh, of, of different ways that we act out or different ways of uh, different, um, uh, different sins of the, of the flesh and of the spirit. Um, uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, that, tr- that trio that you get from uh, the writings of John. Um, and so you have to address those and recognize them. Um, and in an earlier uh, episode, I can't remember who you were interviewing, but there was discussion, I believe, of confession and the importance of that. And And, and certainly for law enforcement officers, we're uh, frankly, cops do have a lot of liberty um, out there on the street. And, uh, of course, that's probably not as great now in the day of, of cell phones where everyone's carrying a camera. But just a, sh- a few short years ago, uh, cops did have a lot of liberty uh, in making arrests in, in how things went down. Yeah. Um, well, even in, the, <clears throat> in our judicial system now, police officers still do have a lot of, of liberty, right? Yeah. Um, I believe in, you know, once again, I, I, some, some lawyer may correct me on one minor thing, but from what I understand, there are certain misdemeanor crimes where, you know, a police officer has to arrest. So that would be like a DUI or domestic assault. Um, but for some misdemeanor crimes, especially if they're crimes against society, like driving on a revoked license or driving without a seatbelt, you know, we don't have to arrest somebody um, for those. Right. Um, or, you know, even for, even for, you know, higher class crimes, right? Like, um, if we technically, if we were to get assaulted and we didn't want to press charges, we didn't have, we, we wouldn't have to, right? There is that liberty. I don't know of any police officer who's going to get hit and then not arrest the person, <laughs> right? but, but that liberty does exist. But even on top of that, um, you know, there, one of the things I want to get to is the, um, we also have social expectation, right? You know, there, there, if someone who is a, um, I don't want to demean people that, you know, maybe work in the private sector, but if a police officer gets arrested or pastor gets arrested, it's getting on the news. Right. Um, right. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, we've, 
we've had our fair share of cops get arrested. Right. And then I, I'm, I'm sure you know pastors that have been arrested or got Certainly. caught doing bad Certainly. things and it makes the news, right? And I think that that can, you know, really take a toll on you. And especially if that sin is building up and you're not confessing it, you're not right. praying, then, you know, it just, just builds up. Uh, Grady, you did mention that um, one of the things that, that has helped you is, you know, centering and, and praying. Um, I want to ask you, how do we properly pray, especially when it comes to centering ourselves back on Christ? I can only describe my practice um, and, and my practice, like for anyone who's, who has uh, been a believer and, and pursued Christ over the years, your practices will change and, and morph over time. Uh, where I'm at right now, um, a non-negotiable seven days a week is a morning devotional time. Um, uh, because of the, my particular calling, I think that uh, my devotional time, which combines uh, reading and study of Scripture, memorization of Scripture, and then prayer, all sometimes guided and sometimes extemporaneous, and I can loop back to that distinction. But I think that because of my calling, um, there should be that should be a weighty part of my day, and I probably spend more time in that than than most people would have the freedom or the ability to do. Um, and then, um, in the last just since 2019, um, I've been very intentional about having a, a midday time of prayer, which uh, in which I use a, uh, a modified liturgy that I've memorized for a short. A short memorized prayer that then leads into some uh, uh, some extemporaneous prayer, and I can uh, I can do that driving from one place to the other, or just pausing at lunchtime. Uh, and generally, that's going to be three to five minutes. Uh, but for that that midday prayer, again, you're asking how to do it. Uh, it will include reciting a psalm and reciting the Lord's prayer, and then out of that, growing into some. Uh, extemporaneous prayers of concerns of the day and then i i try also uh to fall asleep in prayer at night which i think is a god glorifying thing to do that if you drift off to sleep last thing in the day um talking to the heavenly father in the name of christ then i think that's a good thing to do and uh, i also have a, a a memorized liturgy kind of of my own creation for the end of the day that i try to end with um, but if, if you're, you ask the question, how do you pray? If, if I could, if perhaps someone's listening who sincerely wants to pray but just doesn't have an existing prayer life, I would say start by making sure you know the Lord's Prayer and begin with that and pray it slowly and let the petitions of the Lord's Prayer then guide you into, uh, into thoughts that lead into your own extemporaneous prayers. And I would encourage you also to find somebody whose prayer life you admire and ask if you can pray with them once or twice a week. And if prayer is, is, uh, is more caught than taught, I find. And um, so find someone whose prayer life you admire and try to catch the fire from them. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah I think prayer also is a hard thing to nail down, right? Like it's, it is definitely something that you need to learn how to do and there are people who are quote unquote better at it than you are like that you know i know people that are 
And my mom's a really good example of someone who's right. really good at praying all the time and doing it well. Um, but you, if you don't know what you're doing, then it can go south really quick. And so, you know, you do have to be guided in it, but also there is an element of prayer that is very personal. Um, so you, you know, it's a very, very hard thing to, to really nail down. But once again, if you're just starting out, this is your first time doing it, first time doing it 10 years, um, looking for prayers of, you know, first of all, the way God taught us to pray, right. Lord's Prayer. And then on top of that, you know, looking for, you know, ancient prayers or the, the yes. way that the first saints taught us how to pray, I think those are really good prayers. Um, one of the things that I will do um, is uh, in the end of Confessions. Um, I, Confessions is a book by St. Augustine. St. Augustine of Hippo um, was a uh, he was a scholar turned priest in um, the Carthage area um, of the Roman Empire as the Rome was falling. Um, but at the end of of confessions, at you know, the last two paragraphs, last paragraph, he'll he'll ask for God. He'll either thank God for taking him out of something, or he'll ask God to give him you know wisdom or guidance with something. Mm. And those are good, very good prayers. Yes, because they're the same prayers that someone you know before you is praying. Yes, right, right. Um, Grady, uh, before we take a break, I was wondering if you if you wouldn't mind giving an example of, um, th- I mean, this, this can, I want to kind of open this up, but give an example of a time where you really had to use prayer to recenter yourself back into, um, back into ministry. You're having a rough time and you needed to, to go back into it. Only every single day, really. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, you know, uh, prayer really is like breathing um, the, as you grow in the Lord. And, uh, again, I, I, can't, I can't name a particular time because it is, really is every day. And so here's just an example from, from the last two or three days. Um, driving from A to B just on a routine day, and I'm clicking through... Uh, the local radio stations on the dial and going from one station I like to another to another and the, 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 I land on a station and I'm listening to some things that there's a part of me that's enjoying and then the spirit is whispering but that's not really all that edifying for you right now is it and in a way I would not have done 10 years ago I just clicked it off and let that prompt to do that lead me back into prayer Rather than listening to this garbage, Lord, I have this moment of, of solitude. Let me just spend it with you. And uh, I, I can say that by the grace of God, I have grown in, in those things considerably. Yeah, I, I think that um, yeah, that's a good example of um, something that you know, we talk about. If you go to a police academy, you more, you more than likely have heard the term or something around the term combating weakness. Um, so when you find yourself being weak or you find yourself, you know, I can't do this, having a mentality change and doing something to actively combat that. So um, 
so that is a quote unquote spiritual example, but you know, I would say all the way spiritual because prayer is something physical. You actually do it. Um, that a, a good <clears throat> physical example of that is um, one of the practices I have is that if I if I have a thought um, for the day, oh, I really don't feel like if I have a day planned where I'm going to go to the gym, and then I've, I have some kind of thought that oh, I don't want to go to the gym, um, I don't, I, I'm just feeling lazy or I just don't want to do it, and then I will. For having that thought, <laughs> right. I will get on the ground and, and crank out push-ups. Amen. Um, because <laughs> I, it, you know, you need to punish that 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 sloth yes. or whatever. Yes. You know, right when it happens, right. Um, we're going to take just a quick break, and we'll be right back. And we're back. Hey, Will, I really appreciated what you were saying about uh, your self-discipline when you even have a thought of skipping your workout day. And may we apply those things spiritually as well. Um, you know, Jesus talked about if, if your right eye causes you to sin, you deal with it pretty radically. He says you tear it out and throw it away. Now, of course, in that same passage, without getting in the weeds of the Sermon on the Mount, he, he does tell us that these things are really matters of the heart, first of all. But it's interesting that Jesus gives that sort of embodied response, you know, deal with your, with your physical body um, to beat down uh, those issues in the heart. But anyway, I, I was reminded of... A couple of years ago, I was on sabbatical, and uh, in my sabbatical journeys, I got to go to Montana for about two weeks, and I met this wonderful, uh, wonderful gentleman who, uh, um, he runs a couple of small gym mines uh, in, uh, in Montana, and he has a gym store, and he was featured on one of the, uh, one of the cable... G-E-M, gym? G-E-M, gemstones, okay. yes. Uh, he was featured on one of the shows. I can't remember which one it was, but he was real proud of that. And he had pictures of, from, from the filming of that on his, on his walls in his store. But, but he said this. He said, do today who you want to be tomorrow. Do today who you want to be tomorrow. And wow, that's one to take home and to use for the rest of your life. Whatever practices need to happen to become the person that you want to become, start it today, and that will shape your tomorrow. <clears throat> right. Yeah, that, that's another thing um, I've also noticed is, is you know, my, my whole spiritual journey, the whole reason that, you know, I got back into Christianity was, was a physical, I, I think I've told this uh, before, but, um, you know, the, the way in which I think, um, you know, I've got a bunch of family who are professors, right? And so uh, my family and, you know, I tend to think very intellectually, but 
the and that's not to say that you know i'm i'm thinking smarter than other people but the the way in which i I see the world is very much through my brain and you know not through quote unquote my body that's just how i I see the right Um, but it was not it was only when i realized that i you know i have i have a body as well that means something that i really started to appreciate um what christ teaches because um you know my, my whole background is that uh, when I was in high school, I got, I got obese. I was very, very heavy and I needed to lose all that weight. And I, you know, without any, without consulting anybody else, without, you know, I I just, I just figured out a way, you know, I was going to drop all this weight. I was eating, um, 1200, 1400 calories a day. Once again, if you're, if you need to lose weight, don't, don't do, do that. that do not do it that way. <laughs> that was not a smart decision, but it did. I did take weight off. I took a lot of weight off very quickly. Um, I've since learned how to, how to maintain a, a good amount of weight. Um, and you know, I've got certain ways I've done, I've learned a lot since then. Um, but you know, I, I'm still learning. I still have someone that helps me out with that. Who teaches me about nutrition but you know we you do need guidance with this but it i realized when i was losing that weight that if i really want my life to change i have to have some agency and get up yes. and do something about it i yes. can't just sit around you know we we joke about the uh, the lady who's in you know a hurricane and she prays to god that you know god would save her and he sends her a raft and he sends her a boat and sends her a helicopter and sends her a plane. And she's like, you know, God, why didn't you save me? He's like, I tried to save you four times. Right. Um, you know, you, you have to, God works in this world because he created it. Um, you know, is, I think it's very rare that we find that he does something extremely supernatural. It can happen. I, I you know I believe it does happen. I, I think that, the greatest example of that right now would be like Eucharistic miracles where, you know, the, the, hmm. um, the elements become the actual yes body and blood, but you know, we don't see that every day. It's not an everyday occurrence. So, you know, we have to look around us and if we want to make changes to our family life, our personal life, spiritual life, whatever, we have to get up and do them. Right. right. And as a pastor, talking to perhaps cops who are listening, because I think it'll be mainly uh, law enforcement officers who will be picking up this podcast. Um, Number one, I admire you and I appreciate you so much for your difficult, often thankless work. Thank you for being who you are and where you are. You really are that thin blue line between civilization and chaos and in a way that most people don't understand. But uh, but we, we do know, as I'm, I'm just speaking right now pastorally to uh, possible law enforcement officers out there, um, we, we do know that, that the stereotype of cops having a, a difficult family life and struggling in marriage and with child raising um, and with immorality, that, that those stereotypes are there for a reason, uh, that there are tendencies there. And uh, if, if you're not happy with where your marriage and your family life is landing, then today, uh, you be the one, pick up the phone, make the appointment with a counselor. You be the one to, uh, to plan the date night with your wife. Uh, do something. Move on it. 
uh, it's not going to fix itself. And I think that's that's what you're part of what you're driving at there, Will. Well, uh, transitioning just a little bit, uh, one of the things that I want to talk about um, specifically, this applies to. Um, so it wouldn't apply to you know federal or even some state guys, but you know for the for the local cop, right? You've been you were a uh, pastor at a parish for uh, twenty plus years in you know, a small town local area. You know the nobility of working in a local community. One one of the things that I um, there are some so the the department I work for is bigger, but there are some guys that have worked the same beat for i know one guy has worked the same beat 15 years wow um yes the exact same area mm-hmm. 15 years and so he knows that area really and, well and the people know him by name yeah. and he's been there long enough that he's had encounters with lots of folk and he's proven himself over time and yeah. there is a beauty and a strength uh that is that can only be proven over time like that i love that yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I wanted to sure. get, get into that more, right? You know, the, the, imp- I think that, um, a lot of times we think that, you know, making great sweeping change or having some new policy or having a new law is going to fix local communities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I, I do think that, you know, there's a, there's a place for that. But I think at, at the end of the day, you know, personal investment or, you know, a long time investment to make long, sustainable change in a, uh, in a community is what is going to reap the most benefits. You know, not trying to get just ec- economical with it, you know, not trying to say, oh, if I put this much, this amount of time, I'm going to get this much benefit. But, you know, just being happy with where you are and making small change. And, you know, I think you've got a lot of experience here because you, you worked in the same community for, you know, 20 plus years. Would you mind talking a little bit more about the importance of having people that stay in a certain area for a long right. time? One of my favorite subjects that you're touching on. So thanks for the opportunity. Um, Will, I'm convinced that especially coming out of COVID uh, and coming out of the lockdown and the insanity there that went for a big 18 months or more, that what we're seeing across the board in, in American society anyway is a new, newly rediscovered, a, a rediscovered appreciation of the local, of, of the neighborhood, uh, of, of your part of town. Um, and uh, we see this in church life. I've talked with big church pastors and with small church pastors uh, in several different places. And, and, and there's a general consensus that yes, in, in ministry that people are, have a newly, uh, have a rediscovered appreciation of their own street and their own neighborhood. And, and so we are in church life, I think we are rediscovering uh, that old notion of parish, of having a parish ministry. Uh, whereas again, in American Christianity for uh, certainly since the 80s, I believe the, the driving model was that of the big suburban church that people drive away from home and, and, and drive 20 minutes to get out to the big Walmart church outside of town. And I, I do think there is a, uh, a, a, um, a renewed love of the local church in the neighborhood and the parallel with with law enforcement and with school, I think, uh, goes goes hand in hand with that. In terms of law enforcement, 
um, this is your area of expertise, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think back probably in the 50s and 60s, you know, now quite, quite some years ago, in the larger metropolitan areas, that it was common for there to be beat cops who were on their hoofs, you know, walking the sidewalks, the same neighborhoods day after day after day. And then perhaps in the 80s, uh, if not before, because of cutbacks and needing to stretch personnel more, um, the, uh, the local precincts started putting cops in cars. And now you can patrol not just five blocks, but, but eight blocks because you're just driving around. And from what I've heard, I think that was a shift in the way police interacted with the community and with the community uh, perception of the police. Yes, not only was that a change in just law enforcement, but that was also a change in how city structures were, were put together. A really good example of this is, um, I believe, would be the, the city of Nashville. So from what I understand, the city of Nashville in the 60s or in the 70s and the 80s started acquiring a bunch of small towns around it. It eventually has grown to be the Nashville metro. That's how Nashville's run now is a big metro. Right. And the police department is, it's a city county thing. It's not just, you know, we have city and the, and the county sheriff. The county sheriff runs the jail and the city runs the police for the whole, for the whole, um, County of Davidson County. Cities transitioned away from, you know, maybe having a bigger city of, you know, a couple hundred thousand people and then having a bunch of small towns around it to that bigger city acquiring all the small towns. Right. Um, and so annexation. That, yes. Yeah. There's, there was a lot of annexation back then. And so it, it turned, so it got rid of a lot of, of police departments. Yes. Because um, you know, even in rural areas, you have a one two man department. But that one two man department in the fifties and the sixties would have one guy uh, with boots and a cover, and would be walking Main Street back and forth. <laughs> right. Um, and so you know, there there was a the advent of cars and air conditioning mm-hmm. <laughs> led to you know a decentralization right. of stuff. Um, whether whether that be church, whether that be um, it, just the the communities that we interact in that's um you know cars really took that away and then suburbs also kind of yes you did have communities inside of suburbs but that, that took away you know everyone you know living on the same especially where you're from it, and, well it took away the main street feel of america yeah <laughs> and it and it changed the way law enforcement and church both were done and schools yeah uh, what you were describing just now with police, uh, with, with, with the way police organized, certainly the school systems, in many places did the same thing and became uh, the, the huge county or city systems that we have inherited today. Yeah, <clears throat> heck, I'd, I'd argue that it's also changed how um, you know, neighborhoods are run, how your community is run. So from what I understand, you, know, you grew up, real small town Virginia yes. I bet you knew everyone who lived on your street and and the, the parents on everyone on that street could equally punish you for doing something stupid as your own parents could right and you know it applied the same way to other kids right, right? um you know there was there was a higher amount of trust with our with our fellow neighbors right right um and I think that that's I think that having a 
a high amount of trust in your community is something essential for law enforcement. And I think that right. the areas where you find little trust between um, your community members and also between the cops and the, the community itself is where you get just a mess of crime. And you know we don't want that, right? We don't want dysfunction. We want everyone to have an ordered, functional, prosperous life. And you know when I say prosperous, I don't mean just economically prosperous, <laughs> but I mean you know it, you know just a, a a good life that glorifies God. Flourishing. Yes. Yeah. Um. And so I think I think it's important that you know as police officers we we take the time to to do smaller things and you know reinvest in the community members that we've been entrusted with right um there there's a few couple families that i'll visit about once a month and um because something real bad's happened and Mm -hmm. i try to just make sure everyone's doing okay Mm -hmm. um make sure that everyone is you know that you know we're not going back to what happened right (laughs) you know way back when when i responded um, and I think that my going there, it may remind them in like a, a kind of a negative way what happened that day, but it's also, I don't really want them to associate me with that event. I want them to associate me with, or the police with something good happening. Yes. Um, a change happening for the good. Right. Right. And I think that me going back there helps that it helps remind them of you know okay we're not going to do this anymore or we're not going to have this bad experience again we've we've made it we've made a change let's fall through on this um maybe it's a little bit of motivation or a reminder um do you have any uh stories of you know long-term change that you saw i'm sorry i'm sure you've got a few from um you know having worked in a church for 20 years well, in the church itself where I served, uh, and I think people who uh, were there with me for those 20 years, would, would every, every single one would agree with what I'm about to say, that after, about, um, after pushing through about seven years, that there was a cultural change within the church, a change of temperament that, uh, for the better um, that could only happen because I stuck it out through that typical turnover time of about three to five years. And one of the most important studies that I did as a long-term pastor in a small church was when I finally went back and, and reviewed uh, the, uh, the church records, we call them minutes of session, and realized, oh, this church does have a history of about every fourth year the pastor changes. And uh, I certainly felt pressure around that fourth year um, and it was, it's almost, it was almost like a default setting that the church about every four years was ready for somebody else. Uh, so there was a cultural change of, of we are in this for the long haul together that happened. Um, and then because I was blessed to have what is more of a parish ministry than a big box store type church, um, type ministry and, and those are legitimate and brothers and sisters who who worship in the big the bigger um, more resourced uh, more suburban type churches bless you that just wasn't my calling for those two decades um, uh, but be, being able to do what I did in one place as a parish just like you were talking about will uh, you have interactions with families um, 
often those interactions will begin with a death in the family, and maybe it's a family that really doesn't go to church anywhere, but historically there was some tie through their family to your church, and you get that call about, about helping with a funeral. And through that kind of thing, you start building bridges and relationships, and it just takes time uh, to do that. Um, in my world, Will, uh, they say that it takes seven years for a congregation to learn to trust a pastor. And when pastoral turnover is happening every at less than five years, and I don't know what the, the data is now, but when, when you're never reaching that seven years, it means that generations of people are never really learning to deeply trust their pastor. And so uh, turning it back over to you, I wonder what that parallel is in law enforcement. When, what the tipping point is where in your precinct, which is very similar to a parish, where is it, uh, at what point do local people say, this officer, uh, he is a trustworthy person. I can talk to him. I can speak truth without fear of him using it against me. Uh, how long does that take? And what does that look like? <laughs> uh, what does it look like? Well, I'm, I'm going to get there first. Um, I think just not lying to people. Um, you know, in law enforcement, we, if we're investigating a crime, sometimes it is advantageous for us to lie to somebody. Um, and we can do it. Uh, I prefer not to do it. But sometimes um, we, you know, there's nothing against us lying to someone um, right. in, in an interview, right? <laughs> um, we can do it. But I, I think that, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, doing like doing the right thing is, is what, you know, I think that we're, we're called to do what we're supposed to do. Um, a good example of this is one time um, I was at a, I think it was on a traffic wreck and some lady her billfold had like come out during the wreck and a bunch of money went everywhere and so <laughs> um and so i found 50 bucks laying on the ground and you know i walked up to her and was like hey is this your money um you made sure it was in front of my camera and everything yes. but because uh, I, don't, I don't need to get accused of doing anything but being being beyond the the shadow of a doubt that right. you're being trustworthy, I think above reproach. Yes, above reproach. Mm -hmm. um, then you know that that's very important because you know we, we are in a position of, of of trust, right? You know we do yes. pick up. If it'd be really easy if I wanted to to like take meth off people and start using it, right? I'm not going to do that. There's nothing appealing to me about meth, but I I definitely think that you know we do have a an opportunity for that if we wanted to right for a time frame wise you know how long that takes i don't know i hadn't been policing long enough i think for it to like really mm -hmm. see that that'd be a good question to ask someone who's been doing this a hot minute a lot longer than i have mm -hmm. um at least five years but i think that when people can you know know you by name or um or know that that when you show up, you know, you're not looking to just throw everybody in handcuffs. You're not looking to take the next person to the jail for, for something petty that, you know, you're looking to, to solve the problem. That's, I think that's something that my team does a really good job of is that, you know, when we show up on something, we're not looking to throw the next person in jail. We're not looking to, 
we're not looking to just really hem somebody up for something quote unquote small, right? Well, Grady, before we get done, I do want to ask you, do you have any counsel or advice for the listeners of the show? Uh, again, just um, looping back to the topic of, of confession and forgiveness as, as um, God's appointed tools for, uh, for not just experiencing forgiveness for sin, but deliverance from sin's power. Uh, which I believe is very deeply uh, a part of Christian theology, that, that um, by the power of the cross, we're not only forgiven sin's guilt, but we are delivered from sin's grip and its power. And so um, if, if as an officer, if you're finding yourself trapped in any of those, um, any of those sins that, that seem to follow the trade, uh, confess it to death. Uh, it took me far too long in my life to learn that spiritual principle, that confession is really is God's tool for breaking the grip and just saying, this is what it is. And, um, of course, that means you have, you have to have people in your life you can talk to and, uh, and speak truthfully to and uh, vice versa um, and to experience grace with one another. But yeah, just uh, honesty. Honesty is a path to growth. And Will, you were talking about your own, uh, your your high school experience of you let your body get out of shape, and you had a moment of of raw honesty where you looked in the mirror and said, "This is my problem. I've, if if it's going to be fixed, I've got to own it for what it is." And so uh, there is just freedom in that honesty to say, "This it is what it is," and to move forward owning that and being responsible um yeah the 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 pathway uh, acceptance of the self is the beginning of change in yourself and of others Uh, raw honesty this is what it is i'm not hiding myself uh, but then that gives others freedom also and so that's my my call to freedom and and uh confess let us confess our sins to death and uh, trample on the bellies of our lusts, as one of the Puritans would say. Freedom and not licentiousness, right? Amen. All right, Grady, thank you for coming on. If you have any questions, feel free to email remainingsanepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's remainingsanepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at remainingsanepc. Have a blessed rest of your day.